Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you. You are good to us, you are loving, and you are kind. Thanks for the way that you um, provide for us. Thank you for the way that it is true that when we stop and we, we think about the things that we're praying for, although we don't may, maybe get the immediate answer we want or the way that we want it, again and again your hand proves to be faithful. And so we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. As I was praying about it, I was just thinking, um, I had the opportunity to be away for a week. I was in Florida. And everyone's kind of going, yeah, great, why the bitter cold? You have to know it was in the 50s in Florida. But I kept looking at your wind chill index here as I was away. And I realized I was 80 degrees better all the time than you. (laughs) So even though we only had a couple days of sun and it was like in the last 83 years some of the coldest weather, we did it together as a nation. Um, Okay. We're, we're beginning a, a new book. We're actually going to be looking at one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And we're looking at the book called Micah, which some have called the Little Isaiah. It's just about seven chapters, and in it, it's very interesting. But people sometimes ask the question, why study the prophets? Why look at a book like Micah? There are a number of reasons why people avoid this, but I'm going to share with you a couple that cause people to say, I'm staying out of the Old Testament, especially the books of the prophets. I I know myself, when I was learning and and beginning to understand more about God's Word in the the Bible, the prophets were not one of the books that I turned to often. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is it's just difficult, they're difficult to understand. They're not easy books just to pick up and start reading and going, oh, yeah, that speaks to my heart. In fact, Martin Luther, the um, great reformer, a Protestant reformer, complained about the prophets himself. He said they have a strange way of talking like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble from one thing to the next so that you can't make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. Micah, as we study this book, is full of what are, you read it, there are abrupt transitions. Really, the, the prophet Micah and his, his book is a file of his sermons that have been put together. Either he did or his disciples edited and put those together. Um, there's actually, you can almost look at, there's like 20 independent visions or oracles that he gives And there are three what they're called doom and hope cycles in this little book called Micah. Some people are more familiar with Isaiah, where there's a section of the first 39 chapters are really about doom and gloom. And then you get to chapter 40, and chapter 40 on is all about the hope and the glory of the kingdom that's to come. Well, if you look at Micah, you'll see that in chapter 1, Beginning in verse 2, and all we're going to look at today is, is verse 1. But I'm going to try and give you um, some, some basic questions. Why study the prophets? Who is Micah? And what's his message? This is almost kind of a prelude to the messages to come. And if you look at Micah, you'll see there's a series of what are called doom to hope sections. And it begins in chapter 1, verse 2, where there's this judgment that comes against Samaria in Israel. And it goes to chapter 2, verse 13, where he 
moves into this, at the end of chapter 2, this whole portion of hope about the shepherd who will come and will break through. And then there's another cycle, which begins in chapter 3, verse 1, where the prophet stands up and puts together a collection of his messages of where he speaks to the leaders and he speaks to the, the prophets of his own day and he rebukes them. And that, that whole section of doom goes on till the end of chapter 5, verse 15. But you begin around chapter 4 through chapter 5, where he begins to start talking about hope. So he moves from doom to hope again. So this is the second section. And he, he ends with this well-known passage in chapter 5 that is a prophecy of Christ who would be born the Messiah in Bethlehem, this anointed one would come. So there's hope. There's this ruler. There's in chapter two, the shepherd who will break through. Now there's this more pointed look at this one who would come not only be a shepherd, but he would be one who would come from this small town from the line of David. And then chapter six, verse one is the last section of of doom where 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 God basically stands up almost like a judge and says, I have a case against you. I'm going to make it plain. I'm going to put it out there. I, here's my complaint. What's your response? And then he goes into the last parts of chapter 7, where it again he begins to talk about Israel's misery and goes through chapter 7 and begins to talk about the hope that is to come. This God who is a God who loves and forgives. It's not only difficult to understand because of the way it's organized and the way this prophet talks about God's word. It's also a lot of people have trouble studying the prophets because it's so different from anything you read in the New Testament, right? You'll hear often from people, you know, the Old Testament God was so different than the New Testament God. The New Testament God, you know, you find him in Jesus. He's full of love and compassion. He's healing. He's doing good. And he's... He's through Jesus uh, caring for those who are, are sick and oppressed and are coming to him. And he stands up against the religious Pharisees of the day. When you go to the Old Testament, you read about the Old Testament God. He's angry. He's judgmental. He seems to, to um, be punishing all the time. But I want to share with you something. That as we get into this prophet and we begin to understand the God who speaks to this prophet, you will see a God who is so incredibly full of compassion, who defends the poor and the oppressed, who is deeply compassionate to those in need, who have been abused or forsaken, and is passionately angry against those who have much, who could care less about others, and who should know better. This God is a God who is for those who are down and out and needy. The very things we are singing about and we are worshiping. God who knows us in our need. If you grab, as I, I mentioned in one of the articles I sent in our, in our Encounter magazine that we sent out, and you grab just the prophets, you see, it's, if you grab that portion of Scripture in your Bible, just the prophets, the latter prophets, it is about the same size as if you were to grab the New Testament. So when I, when, I, when I did that one day, just out of curiosity, I thought to myself, it really is important that we take a look at, if you look at the size of the New Testament and how powerful it is that God speaks to there, why would he spend this many pages to speak? And if he is speaking about something, we probably should pay attention to it, wouldn't you think? 
What's really interesting about, about this whole area of the prophets and this time of the prophets, you, you find that, that God has taken the people of Israel and he takes this, this nation who are a bunch of slaves who are oppressed and abused, who have been supposedly forsaken. And he, through Moses, leads this people out of slavery, this inhumane treatment as being just property, told they needed to make so many bricks and then they would make, have to make more bricks. And they had no sense of freedom, no sense of their own purpose. They were under the hand of a heavy oppressor and God frees them. And when he frees them, he brings them through the sea. And as he's bringing them along through the desert, one of the first steps, one of the first stops is at Mount Sinai. And it's very interesting that he would stop before he got the people much further than that. And he would say, I have some rules, which we call Ten Commandments, which are some guidelines that I want to give you because I have taken you. If you read that portion of scripture in Exodus, he refers to the fact that I, this God, have freed you. So he reminds them of their captivity. He says, you've been living in this inhumane slave condition just as property. I'm going to take you out and I'm going to give you some guidelines that will help create the kind of community where you can truly be human. You can truly be like I am. You can actually bear to others my image. And we often think of those Ten Commandments as this angry guy who lays out a bunch of rules and says, you, you don't follow those rules, you're in trouble. But when you put it in the context of what he's seeking to do, he's taking a people who have been slaves, he sets them free, and he says, if you want to enjoy this freedom, let me give you some guidelines so that you can create an authentic, loving, merciful, kind, humble community that lives well together. And so before you ever get to this land where you will actually build your houses and do all that, I'm going to give you these guidelines, these commandments, that so as you begin to follow those and you employ these in your life, you will begin to see my image being borne out through you. And so you look at the first commandment. The first commandment says that God is our source. And then you look at the second commandment. The second commandment basically is this, this statement of don't take who I am and try and put it in some kind of wooden object or image. Because in that day, in that culture, when a person would follow a God, they would often make their God a representation. And this God who controlled their life, they would put down in an idol and they would form it that way. And God says, don't do that. I can't be represented in some kind of stone, in some kind of wood. In fact, what I want to do is I want you as a people I want you as human bodies, as a body of people, to represent me. Which brings you to the third command. And I heard a writer put it this way. And when you think of the fact of these prophets who are speaking to this people who are set free, it, it says in this third command that God is inviting these people to be priests, to show the world what this God is like through their lives. This God doesn't need images in the form of wood or stone or marble because this God has people. This God is looking for a body, human bodies, a people to bring his image, to bear his name. The command about idols and images, the second, leads to this third commandment, the prohibition not to misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the Hebrew word for misuse here can also be translated carry. Carry. 
God has redeemed these former slaves and is now inviting them to be representative in the world of this redemption and the God who made it happen. They are how the world will know that this God is who he is. And God's reputation is going to depend on them and how they carry God's name. Okay? Here are these slaves. They've been set free. If you want to live in the freedom of what it means to walk in, 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 in fellowship with God and to create the kind of community that is fully human as God intended, that bears forth his image, then you need to also carry. In doing that, you will actually carry forth and represent my name. The command is certainly about the words a person speaks, but at its heart, it is far more about how Israel carries herself as those who carry the name of God. Will she act on behalf of those who are slaves and poor and oppressed? Because this is how God acts. The Ten Commandments are a new way to be human, a new way to live and move in the world, in covenant with God who hears the cry of the oppressed and liberates them. God is inviting, is looking, is searching for a people to be the body of God in the world. Now I read all that and give you that all as a context because what you have is these people who have been placed in, in this land called Israelites who have now for years been following God, have had the commandments, and now we come to a time years later where they should be representing God to the world, a light for all to see. And the prophets, like Micah, step on the scene and they see that this people are far from carrying the very image of God. The way they act, the way they behave, the way that they're living. No one would know that they bear God's name. And so Micah steps on the scene. Who is Micah? Micah is a country boy from a small town. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, of Morasheth. He's actually an outsider to Jerusalem and this land, Judah. He comes from this small town from a farming village called the Shephela. It's kind of the valley that, that um, is just west of Judah, in, in Judah and Jerusalem, where you would see the Philistines had all settled and you could come through there. So it was a very rich, fertile area. It's also known often in scripture as Morasheth Gath, about 20 miles south West from Jerusalem. And the reason it's called Morsheth Gath often in Scripture is it's similar to what we might do if you were to talk to somebody and say, Oh, yeah, I have a friend who lives in Watertown. And you would go, Yeah, Watertown, Minneapolis. You know, you, you know what I mean? How you, how you use a small town and then you reference it to a larger town? So they would say Morsheth Gath because Gath was one of the five cities of the Philistines. And in that day, that was a large city. They knew about it. So he would basically, all he would need to say, oh, yeah, Morsheth Gath. And they'd go, oh, yeah, I know where that is. And so he, he designates who he is. He's not from a distinguished family like Isaiah. Isaiah was his contemporary. Was giving messages at the same time during the same reigns that Micah was. And so Isaiah was one who came from, many believe, from the courts, very distinguished family, had an in with all those who were the nobles in that Israelite day. But not, not Micah. Micah comes from the outside. He's just a small town boy. In fact, Micah is known often as the, the prophet of the poor 
or, or better really as the prophet of the oppressed, because he's probably a guy who comes from a small town village and he's seeing what's happening, the oppression that's happening to the small town farmer. He's coming into the big city with a message that's really big and, and really hard to hear. And so you have Micah from Moresheth, a prophet, if you look at verse 1, the vision he saw or the, or, or the prophecy he was given. It actually begins the word of the Lord given to Micah. Literally, Micah begins this way. If you were to actually literally write it, the word of I am. That's what the word Lord stands for. We always use Lord, but a good Jew would know Yahweh. The word of I am, which would immediately recall to them their history of Moses, who was, who was out in the wilderness when he was there by a burning bush and I am revealed himself to him. So here's the word of the same I am now speaking to Micah. As he says, the word of I am given to Micah. The singular construct, if you look at the word of the Lord, it occurs 242 times in the Old Testament and almost always, 225 of those times, it's a technical form for the prophetic revelation. And if you note how he begins, he wants to make it very clear. And I just wonder in some ways if this is, is because he is a guy from the outside, from a small town, who's coming into the big city where there were larger, better known prophets, and there were priests who were better known than him, and there was the whole kingly court. He's coming from the outside. He wants to make it known right from the get-go. He says, the word of I am. These revelations, which came through him, a human author, some small-town boy, over a period of 50 years, by way of visions and, and, and revelations, he wants to know the real author of all these is the Lord I Am, who was revealed to Moses. And so he begins, and he says, this is God's word that I'm about to share with you. This is not some human word. This is not standing up to some guy going, well, here's my opinion on how the way things are going right now. I just want to share with you, he's basically saying, the word, which is really a singular construct for the words that had been given to him by God concerning what was happening in that day in their lives. These people who had been freed from Egypt as slaves, who are now free, who were called to live in such a way that these, this God revealed himself through these commands and guides in order that they would create this kind of community that would represent to the world this God who has a heart of compassion and love, who wants to free people from their sin and from their slavery and from their oppression and from every kind of abuse and from forsakenness and who wants to meet needs and who wants to provide for those who are calling out to him. This God who loves you and who loves me in a humble, calling-out, needy state, this God is now, at this time in the life of this nation, no longer represented in any way that looks like the God who called them. And this word comes from Micah. So what's his message? If I was to sum up his message, it would be simply to say, I think this is how Micah would say, we serve an incomparable, uncommon God who calls us to an incomparable, uncommon walk. We serve an incomparable, uncommon God. And the reason you get that is by his very name. It's interesting, in, in, in chapter 1 of verse 1, the Lord given to Micah, the very name Micah shouts out this truth. Because it is, it is a sentence name. It is a name that when you say it, it has meaning. 
The word my means who, ka, the K or C-A, is like, and the H or Y-A-H in Hebrew would be who is like God. So every time his parents, who purposely named him Micah, every time they called his name, they were calling out this sentence, who is like God? Hey, who is like God? Come here. How would you like that for a name? Hey, who is like God? Would you please answer this question this morning? Hey, who is like God? It's time to eat. Every time his name was called, he was reminded of this truth. There is no God like the God you serve. There is no God who is in any way like the God that is seen in every other culture around you. Micah, who is like God, is your God. He is so incomparable. He is uncommon to anything you might know. He is so separated from what you know. And so when you go through this, this, um, these visions and revelations of Micah, you find, in a sense, these questions. Who, like I am, or the Lord, testifies to the truth? You go through here, and, and, and Micah says, here is a God who will come, and he will tell you the truth. He will not mince his words. And you see it when you read it. I think that's sometimes why it's hard for people to read the prophecies, because those prophecies are so strikingly truthful. That they, they almost hurt when you hear it. There's a number of words in Hebrew for truth. One of the words is, is like a wrestler that pins you to the ground. Another word for truth in the Hebrew is like a knife that cuts. There is a sense where he says, who is like I am? Micah, the name. Who is like I am? Who tells the truth and doesn't mince words. As you go through this book, you find out, you'll, you'll see this statement of who is like I am, who is impartial. He plays no favorites. Here is these people who have been set free. They were in Egypt. They were once slaves. They have been given the law. They have been taken through the wilderness to show that they have this God who is like any other God who provides for you at every turn in every way, who brings you into this land which he had promised. He is so faithful that he does what he says. And then as you live and you begin to live out in this land that he has provided for you, he now comes to these people whom he has given much, who could care less with what they have to give to other people. And they should know better. And God says, you know what? Just because I chose you from all the cultures to be able to create a culture and a people that would represent me, just because I called you doesn't mean that I won't tell you the truth and does not mean I'll play favorite with you. Who is like I am who pleads with his children when they've turned against him? Who is like I am as you go through this book? Who not only pleads, but will actually discipline, will come in and do those kind of things to try and get their attention so that they will not continue to walk in the way that they're walking so that someday they hit a brick wall. They actually find themselves, due to their life, judged by their sin. Who is like God? Who stoops down as you read this? And sees the needs of those who are oppressed. And who is like a God? You get to the end of chapter 7, verse 18. Which is the key verse, really, of the whole book of Micah. Verse 18. Who, listen to this, is a God like you, says Micah, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities in the depths of the sea.
Who's like that? That even when you've blown it and you've blown it big and you've blown it a number of times, though when you um, come to your senses and you turn in repentance and you begin to see the gracious working of his Holy Spirit in your life and, and how God is orchestrating all these things to bring you to a point where you will turn to him, even allowing you to come to your very end, this God will come to you still and say, I forgive you. Who's like that? That's his name, Micah. Who's like God? We serve an incomparable and common God, and the message of Micah is this. And he calls us to be an incomparable, uncommon people. Who's like Wyzetta Free? Who's like Kevin, Jim, Bob, Sue, Mary, Charlene? Who's like that person? who serves this incomparable, uncommon God, they, in the sense that they are living and beginning to show this incomparable, uncommon God in their lives, the image of this God is beginning to shine through, and they are also seen in a very incomparable, uncommon way as they live their life in their work world, and in their community at school, or, or in their community socially that they're involved with. Who is like that person? Only God. That's kind of the message he's getting at. And, and this, to understand that, you have to look at the times of which he was writing. He wrote during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Isaiah was his contemporary. Isaiah had one king that he, when he was giving, was before that, Uzziah. So Micah comes just a little bit after Isaiah starts proclaiming his message. I'm going to give you a timeline to help you understand this. And I didn't get this in seminary. Boy, I wish they would have done this when I was in seminary. I got this afterwards. Okay, this is not one of these exact numerical timelines. It's one of these general thumbnail, you can hang kind of some thoughts on it and understand history from this basic thing. So if you look at it, around 2,000 years before Jesus was born, zero over here, Abraham was called. A person was called out of a people. Around 1,500 years, another 500 years, Moses was called. A people was called out of a people. Around 1,000 are the reigns of David and Solomon. This is this person who was called and this people who was called out of a people now is this nation who is united in such a way that they are to display the wisdom and glory and presence of God. And it comes to its height in the reign of David and Solomon where, the, where they are called and they bring this united kingdom. But soon after Solomon... The kingdom divides. So around 1,000, a little after, there's a divided kingdom. You have two sisters, if you want to look at it that way. You have Judah and Jerusalem, who's in the south, and then you have in the north, Samaria and Israel. When you get to Micah, it's around 700. The reigns of Jotham are 742 to 735, of Ahaz, 735 to 715, of Hezekiah, 715 to 686. So at 1,000 is David and Solomon, they're called. About halfway through there is the prophet Micah. If you continue on the timeline, just to get kind of the, the hangers of what's happening historically, 500 is when after the people have been exiled, have been sent into Assyria or Babylon, and they have been taken from their land, it's around 500 that God calls them back, they return. And then go another 500 years, you have the birth of Christ. 
And for those of you who want to just go one little bit more, I didn't put it on here. From zero to about 100 is the, is the time of Christ, the early church, and the last writing of the New Testament book is believed to be Revelation around 90 A.D. So that's why I'm saying these are general figures. But they help you. I call them kind of in my mind hangers of history for the Bible. And, and by doing that, it gives me kind of a perspective of what's going on. So here is Moses who's called. God calls these people out. Almost a thousand years later, after they have been given every opportunity to display the glory of God, to represent his image to other people, to show this incomparably uncommon God in their incomparably uncommon life that the world was to look on and experience and see, here they come, Micah, to this people because they are so common. They are so comparable to every culture around them. So, what's going on in this time? In this time, there's two major forces that are occurring. One which I call internal, and the other is external. Internally, what's going on in the nation of Israel is there is moral corruption within. Amos, who is a prophet just a generation before, if 742 begins the reign of Jotham, from 775 to 743 was a prophet named Amos who came and he primarily spoke to the northern kingdom, the, the bigger sister Israel and Samaria. And he gives the eyewitness, when you read his book, to the moral rot that's at work inside Samaria. At times he compares them to to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how morally rotten it's become. Amos chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, The Lord says this, They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. This is a generation just before Micah coming. He's speaking to Samaria. I give you, I gave you empty stomachs in every city, lack of bread, and you, as a result of it, didn't return to me. So he made it things difficult for you. You're getting hungry right now. Things aren't good, but you're still not turning to me. I withheld rain from you, he says, when the harvest was still three months away. And then I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another did not. People staggered from town to town. There wasn't water, and yet you still didn't return to me. Many times I struck your gardens and your vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you did not return to me. And basically he's saying, all this stuff is happening. I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to get you to turn. I'm trying to get you to recognize how much I love you. That I don't want you to walk in this way because it's leading to destruction. It is leading to a destination that you do not want to go. And God has been speaking, I believe, to some this morning. About the very same truth. He's been at work. He's been trying to get your attention. It may be through your marriage. It may be through a friendship that is just painful. It may be through a work situation. I I don't know. The Holy Spirit knows. I'm not playing prophet. I'm just speaking that if God's Spirit is speaking to you, you need to pay attention. Chapter 5, he says in Amos, You hate the one who reproves in court, despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you're not going to live in them. Though you have these plush planted vineyards or these nice businesses, you're not going to get their profit, is what he's saying. You won't drink from their vine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, deprive the poor. 
In chapter 8, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the moon be over, new moon be over? Now they're getting religious. When may we sell our grain and the Sabbath ended so that we can skimp the measure given, boost the price and cheat with dishonest scales? Almost can we do our religious thing and once we get our religious thing done, we'll just still keep doing what we want to do. We buy the poor, the needy for a pair of sandals and sell even the sweepings with the wheat. And Micah, look at verse 9 of chapter 1. He's repeating a similar message that they heard north in that kingdom of Israel to the big sister, to the little sister, to Jerusalem, the capital of southern kingdom of Judah. It says here the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. He begins just very briefly talking to Samaria because Samaria won't be around too much longer, but most of his message is to Jerusalem. And verse 9 says, For her wound is incurable. It has come from Samaria to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. It's interesting. Waltke, an um, Old Testament scholar, writes this about this time. He says, From Hosea's successors, Micah and Isaiah, we learn that the contagious social injustices that prevailed in Samaria now prevailed in her prostitute sister Jerusalem as well. Egregious injustices by rich landowners against stalwart farmers whom the rich were driving off their land and into an unrelieved, dependent economic status. And he gives a whole bunch of verses in Micah to back that up. And they were producing a shocking contrast between the extreme wealth and dire poverty. Dishonest practice prevailed everywhere. Since judges and prophets were corrupt, the poor had no redress and no voice. I am had entrusted political power to the royal court system to safeguard his holy nation against injustice, sanctioned prophets to stand above the judges to hold them accountable to I am, and elected priests to teach them covenant values. But the royal judges despised the justice, distorted all that is right. The gifted prophets became hirelings, and the educated priests only taught for a price. Blinded by their own greed, the false prophets saw no connection between Israel's sin and the rampaging Assyrian army at their doorstep. But the true prophet saw the holy sovereign marching above the Assyrian juggernaut. When Israel's social safety net broke, I am the Lord himself stepped into the to right the wrong and fulfill the covenant curses. And the nation that bore I am the Lord's name looked religious as it thronged to the temple and offered lavish gifts to buy off I am. But because they replaced the moral covenant which mandated love to God, love for neighbor, with a covenant among the powerful to despoil the weak, judgment was inescapable. So what was happening within morally had an external component. There was a military force without that God was allowing, in fact, calling. In fact, Isaiah says that God, in Isaiah chapter 5, 26 to 29, I mentioned this in the series at Christmas, actually whistles for this Assyrian nation to come. And God's call through Micah is to his people to be like him, to have his heart, to show his compassion as he does, to be fair as he is fair, just as he is just, generous as he is generous, concerned for the oppressed, as he is concerned. So that you read Micah 6 8, which rings out so clearly and loudly. Here's what he shows you to do, O oh man. This is what is good. What is it that God requires of us? 
to act justly. It's really pretty simple. To be lovers of mercy and to walk with humility before God. What does God require of you? In a sense, as we go through this, the grid that we're to look at all of life through is very simply this. What does it mean to be just? What does it mean to be merciful? What does it mean to be humble? And all that we see. And how incomparably uncommon we are to be as a community that lives and walks it out. When I think about that, it just, as I read this and I've been studying this and I've been looking at it and I've been just so grateful and thankful as I look at how God has been at work within our body. The heart that he's developing in our, in our hearts as we reach out to those who are oppressed by sin, of their own sin, those who are oppressed in need and how we meet those needs. And the only way God does that is by the heart that humbly, honestly comes to him and says, take my heart and make me the person that you want me to be.